Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and we've got a wonderful Christmas spirit-filled hour times two today. It's going to be wonderful. I'm going to be joined by Dr. Ian Paul, all the way over from the UK, and we're going to talk about Christmas. And then uh, Ace Collins, who has written, I think, between 95 and 103 books, give or take a couple. Um, He is one of the premier resources on a history of Christmas, and we're going to talk to him in the second hour. So that's going to be a wonderful day, and it's Monday, so happy Monday, and yeah, I love Mondays. And as we're just getting ready for the week, I just pray that the miracle of Christmas is going to be bringing you great joy and happiness. I pray that you have uh, contentment and peace between you and your family and all your loved ones. Uh, I'm just sending... My wishes with lots of love today. Let's take a little break and then bring on Dr. Ian Paul. We all love getting something for free. Here's something that's free that you can really use. It's the free Faith Radio app. You can use the app to listen to the live stream, access program podcasts, and stay informed with all the latest contests and events today. All you have to do is download the free Faith Radio app in iTunes or Google Play. Just search for Faith Radio, download the app, and enjoy Faith Radio wherever you go. Download the free Faith Radio app and start listening today. There it is at the front of the tree again this year, a popsicle stick reindeer. It's been there every year for decades now, through school, marriage, births, deaths, job changes, and unexpected journeys. Through it all, it's been there, a simple symbol of hope. As you listen to Faith Radio this season, may that hope become front and center in your life from the one who is always there, the one who is hope. Welcome back to the show. I'm always thrilled when I get a chance to talk to Dr. Ian Paul. He's a theologian and author, speaker. He's got lots of uh, titles, and I like all of them. He's from uh, adjunct professor at Fuller, associate minister at St. Nick's in Nottingham. Uh, He goes on and on. He loves chocolate. And he uh, tweets at uh, (laughs) Safizo. Safizo. Yeah, Safizo. Yeah, I thought I'd get that right this time, but Ian, I didn't. That was good. I'm I'm really impressed. Yeah, I'm working on it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, That's great. I love the way you say Nottingham. What should I say? Well, everyone in England says Nottingham. Oh, Nottingham. Sorry. Yeah. All right. Nottingham. All right. <laughs> but then Nottingham. Place- All right. From yeah, Nottingham place- is uh, our guest Ian Paul. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a place south of us called Loughborough, and a lot of people, folk from the states call it Lugabaruga because that's how it's spelled. <laughs> so that, that gives them thing. <laughs> All right. Now that we're done making fun of me, let's um, <laughs> let's talk about uh, some Christmas traditions. I mean, once we get an idea in our head, it's hard to overwrite that overwrite that tradition. We we think that that Jesus was born in a stable because we've got our our uh, our manger scene that we set up every year, and there's the stable. But that's really not true, is it? 
Well, it's not. And I don't know if your listeners are going to be shocked by that. I think we've talked about this before. It is amazing what a grip traditions have. You know, we, we do things, particularly if we've done things when we're young. And then, you know, as we get older, we, we love to have the, the same traditions. They they connect us with the past. So we, we love that kind of continuity. But it is really interesting to see what different traditions people have. I, we had an American friend over for Christmas a couple of years ago, and he was really surprised at the kind of traditions that we have. Like we have these Christmas crackers, which you don't have, I don't think, mostly. Mm-hmm. And we... we they, they contain a hat and a bad joke. And, you know, <laughs> I'm interested. Friends, they go, what, what is that about? <laughs> I'm interested. Tell me more about this hat and bad joke. Well, we have a Christmas cracker, so it's a, a tube, and you pull it, and it makes a bang. Okay. And inside, inside the tube, you have a gift, which oh, is nice. usually something useless. Yeah. You have a hat. You have to put that on. So it's like we're all being kings, celebrating. Okay. Uh, and then you have a bad joke, and you tell everyone tells their bad jokes. And Actually, sociologists have shown that telling bad jokes is really significant because if you tell a clever joke and only some people get it and some people don't, you divide the group into two. But if you tell a really bad joke that everybody gets and they all go, oh, not that one again, it actually unites everybody around the table. So that's actually a really significant British tradition. And Uh, I know that you guys find it really strange, but we uh, we love our traditions. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, I always love to, uh, first and foremost, go to Scripture to find out what Scripture teaches, teaches us about what happened that wonderful night? Um, and Ian, maybe you would share uh, and help us understand it more correctly. Yeah, I think so. And the first thing to observe, and again, we often don't notice this, is that when you read Matthew's nativity, uh, Matthew 1 and 2, it's mostly told from the point of view of men. So Joseph has a dream, Herod's involved, you get these wise men, these magi from the East. When you look at Luke's account, it mostly focuses on the experiences of the women. So, well, Zechariah gets struck dumb, literally. He doesn't say, a, you know, he can't say a thing. But you get the insights from Mary's encounter with Gabriel. You get um, Elizabeth's perspective. So it's really interesting to see the two. And often we don't realize that because, you know, in our church services, we mix the reading, Christmas readings together and sort of end up with a sort of Christmassy mulch. So it's, first of all, really interesting to, to look at the different accounts. Secondly, Luke is always locating what's happening, not just from the perspective of women. He's also looking at some of the big questions of history. So when you read Luke chapter 2, Luke immediately says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. So he's he's relating the the Christmas narrative to the big events in his world because he's telling us there's something really significant happening here. But the paradox is it actually looks very insignificant and very ordinary. So in other words, what Luke is telling us is that this very ordinary birth actually is hugely significant in the history of the world. And that's one of the, the huge paradoxes of Christmas. It's not, it's, it, it, it's that, you know, uh, the creator God has emptied himself and taken the form of a human baby. Uh, and Luke is really trying to, trying to draw that contrast out. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question is, where do we get this idea of uh, the stable from? Well, it may surprise your listeners, and it surprises people when I tell them. I said, you know what? You know, the stable is never actually mentioned. They go, no, really? No, it's there. Sure, it's there. Said, no, no, no. No, no. Read, let's read the text. Okay, so Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 6. Um, While they were there in this house, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to a firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in the manger because there was no something available for them. Okay, now I've said there's something. So the first thing we notice is, she wrapped him in cloths and she placed him in a manger. Now, that's just a fancy old word for a food trough. And this is, it shows one of, one of the ways in which we're constrained by the tradition because, you know, people sing, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. 
And in fact, the translators, I'm reading here from the NIV version, and the translators here have felt constrained by the tradition. They know that everyone knows Jesus was laid in a manger, so they translate the word manger. Well, we wouldn't let not a normal everyday word. If I was a farmer and I had a trough where I put the food for the animals to eat out of, I would call it a food trough. I wouldn't call it a manger. Um, and it is, that's the word, just means the, the, the place where you put the animal's food. So, of course, most of us are thinking, okay, my house has floorboards or it has carpets. I don't keep pigs and cows and sheep in here. So if I had a food trough, I know where it would be. It would be outside in the garage or it would be out in a stable or something where I keep the animals. So that indicates the second issue while we're reading these texts. We actually imagine that the first century world that Jesus was born in is just like our world. And they kept the animals where we would keep the animals. But, of course, it isn't like that. Uh, in the first century world that, that Luke's writing about, if you had animals, you would normally bring them into your home at night because you'd have to be extremely wealthy to have a separate stable, a separate building. Most people would be at subsistence level. They'd probably have a single room house for the whole family. They'd have a, especially if the house was built onto a, a slope or a hillside, they'd have a lower part of the, of the main room. And that's where they would bring the animals in at night. Mm -hmm. and actually, we can see that kind of culture when we pay attention really carefully to other things that Jesus says. So, for example, when he's healing someone on the Sabbath and the Pharisees are criticizing him, he says, which of you on the Sabbath would not untie your animal and leave them out? So the situation he's imagining is we're sitting in the, the house on a Sabbath and we get up in the morning. The animals are at the bottom of the house. We untie them. We leave them out the door of the house. And when Jesus is teaching about us being the light of the world, he says, you know, which of you, when you light a lamp, uh, put it under a basket? No, you don't. You put it on a lampstand, he says, and it gives light to the whole house. OK, so here's the question. What kind of house can you light with a single lamp? And the answer is a house with one room where the, you sleep at one end, where you do your daily work, whatever, in the middle, where you keep the animals at the bottom. So that's the kind of social situation that Jesus is described, that Luke is describing here. Mm -hmm. And it's just so easy for us to impose our own assumptions about what life was like onto that text. I, I can understand why we do that, because actually one thing we fail sometimes to recognize is that is that these biblical texts, these gospel texts, they're very sparse compared with what we write today. You know, writing was a very expensive thing. The, the um, parchments that they used were of a finite length and parchments were expensive. Getting a scribe to write, you know, if you paid a scribe as a specialist job, that was an expensive thing, too. So the gospel writers were very condensed in what they said. And I guess it's easy for us because he doesn't describe the whole situation. Easy us to just to fill in the details from our own, our own culture. Mm -hmm. And, Ian, I would imagine every civilization throughout all of world history, uh, women have helped other women who are giving birth. Absolutely. And again, one of the things that people often imagine or they reconstruct, they add into the story, is the idea that Mary and Joseph were lonely, uh, they were rejected. Um, we, we, we know that there were some issues around the fact that Joseph wasn't actually Mary's father. Uh, uh, sorry, Joseph wasn't Jesus's father. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, they came to Jerusalem, they came to Bethlehem when Mary was expecting. But actually, really interestingly, the text in Luke's gospel makes no mention whatsoever of any issue of shame. And he's coming to, Joseph's coming to Bethlehem, which is his family home. He'd have had relations there. And everything we know about culture in the Near East, both now and back then, is that hospitality was a, was a prized 
the value. So, you know, if you had relatives coming, you wouldn't ask any questions. You would open the door and you'd welcome them in. It doesn't matter how many people were already there. Uh, these are your relations. You know, the worst thing you could possibly do is not look after your relations. So mm -hmm. there's no indication in the text at all that they were shamed, that they were they were outcast. And in fact, everything we know about that culture says they'd have been welcomed in. And as you say, you know, when, when a woman gives birth, all the other women come around and they act as midwives and, and they work together. Um, we see that in other examples in Scripture, for instance, in uh, with the story of Moses' birth. You know, there's explicit mention of, of all the midwives there. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you're right. Yeah. Dr. Ian Paul is my guest. We're going to take a little break and we'll be right back with lots more. Welcome back to the show. I'm delighted to talk to Dr. Ian Paul. He's a theologian and a speaker and author, academic consultant. I could go on and on. He's also the associate minister at St. Nick's in Nottingham over there. So, uh, but I, we're talking about uh, the night that Joseph, uh, the night that Jesus was born, and it's clear from Scripture that it says that while they were there, they were spending days before it happened. And with Joseph being from the line of David in the city of David, he's not going to be rejected everywhere he goes. No, he can be brought into the family. Right. And we've looked at the fact that animals were there in the house. Now, another part of this text which has puzzled us, and I think some English translations have slightly misled us. And again, it's, it, we have to remember there are two things are happening when we're reading Scripture. On the one hand, you know, some people say we're reading something which is like a love letter from God. We're, we're, we're wanting... Uh, go, to hear what God is saying to us through Scripture. And, of course, we feel instinctively that, that Scripture is, is our book, and that is true spiritually. On the other hand, we also need to recognize that Scripture is written by human individuals in a particular time, in a particular place, using a language, a different language from the language we normally speak and making assumptions about culture which are different from ours. And so we, we need to always recognize those two things about Scripture. God is speaking to us, but he's speaking to us through people who lived in a different culture and lived a different life from, from the way we lived. And this is the second puzzle, really, or the second issue around this passage. Um, she wrapped him, it says Luke 2, verse 7, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room in the something for us. Something, for yes. And the, the King James Version says there was no room in the inn, and that's given rise to all the traditions, and particularly like in when, when kids do school nativity plays, and you know someone's always vying for the person, to put the, the role of the innkeeper, and they knock on the door, no room, knock on another door, no room in the inn. Okay, but again, that's not at all what Luke is actually saying. There, there are two words that he could use. One word, which he does use later on in the story of the Good Samaritan, where the Good Samaritan takes the man who's injured, and he binds him up, and he puts oil in his wounds, and he takes him to a pandokeon. A pandokion is the normal Greek word for an inn. Pan, you might recognize, means everyone or all. So a panorama is a place you can see everything. A pandokion is a place where everybody could go. So it's not a, like a family home. It's, it's where you would go and a traveler would rest and they'd pay some money and they maybe be provided with some food or there's a common cooking area. So that's the kind of thing we would think of as an inn. And they did exist in the ancient world. Um, but here... Luke uses a different word. The word is kataluma, and a kataluma is a lodging place. And in fact, it's the word that's used for an upper room in a house. So in Mark's gospel, the Last Supper takes place in a kataluma, in, in an upper room in, in, in someone's house. And in fact, here, um, my translation now says there was no guest room available for them. 
And actually, again, if you look at the archaeology of first century homes, often a single room, animals at the bottom, the family at the top, quite often, in order to accommodate members of the extended family, you would build an extra little room on the roof. In fact, you can still see that today in places in Israel. Uh, a few years ago, I stayed in Israel by the Jaffa Gate, and I stayed in a hotel, and it, you had to go up the stairs and up the stairs and up the stairs. And in fact, we got to the roof, and the place I was lodging was another little room built on top of the roof just to sort of provide extra accommodation. So that was a natural way that people did that. And what Luke seems to be saying is either the guest room on the built on top of the building either already has somebody in, or it could mean that the guest room wasn't big enough for them. So if it's a little room built on the roof, okay, a couple of people could sleep in there. But as you say, if Mary's giving birth, you need a lot of other people around, you need some more space. So actually, Luke is saying that Jesus was born not in some stable outside away rejected, but Jesus was born in the heart of the home, in the heart of a busy family home where everything else was going on. And I think that's really significant for the way we celebrate Christmas. Boy, Ian, I do too. And then when I think about the idea that Jesus was most likely, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, most likely born in, in just some peasant's home. Mm. Does that seem reasonable? Yeah, that, that's right. Now, on the one hand, you know, one of the things that people love to say is, oh, at Christmas time, you know, uh, Jesus um, humbled himself by coming amongst us. And he humbled himself by being rejected and outcast and poor. And of course, we read in, in uh, John chapter one, you know, that phrase, he came to his own and his own did not accept him. And people then kind of tie that in with the whole thing about the stable and say, well, there you go. Look, Jesus being rejected. In John's gospel, though, that isn't about his the nature of his birth. That's a a forecast, an anticipation of the fact that, you know, Jesus came to his own Jewish people and many of the Jewish leaders rejected him. And we find that theme throughout John's gospel. But actually, it's really interesting to read what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, when he's, he's, he's writing about the collection for the churches. And he's writing about the need for us to be generous and to give of ourselves to others. And he says, he who was rich beyond all splendor for our sakes became poor. And what Paul means by that is not that he was born into a particularly poor peasant home. I don't think in this, the birth narrative there's any evidence of that. In fact, uh, Jesus was a, a tectone. He was a, a, um, probably not a carpenter, but a, a builder and um, was probably uh, started off working in Joseph's building business. So actually in the socioeconomic strata of the time was probably not badly off uh, in terms of the, the family business and probably had people who that employed. We know that James and John, in their fishing business, they had hired hands there, so they were running quite a, a good business as well. So they weren't the poorest of the poor in the way we think of it. Actually, for Paul, the poverty of Jesus was becoming human. Uh, you know, to, mm -hmm. to be, if you're God, if you're God and you become incarnate, the poverty is letting go of the splendor of divinity wow. and actually becoming a human being like all of us. In fact, any of us, however wealthy we are in material terms, we are finite. And we are creatures. And, you know, God's reaching down his condescension to us is the fact that he came and he lived a life like any of us might live, whatever our status. He doesn't have to become the poorest of the poor in order to, you know, have emptied himself and, and, and come and, and met with us. It's just a mind-blowing thought, Ian, oh, that you just shared. Yeah. yeah. So when you but again, you see, when we celebrate Christmas, it means that actually uh, one of the things I observe um, particularly when we get these Christmas traditions and, and round in, in the UK, we see 
uh, Christmas trees put up earlier and lights put up earlier. And then, you know, you guys have given us this Black Friday idea. I'm not too keen on that as an import <laughs> from the other side of the pond. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, actually, Christmas has become very commercialized. It's about eating food. It's about having a turkey. It's about family. Now, those things are not bad in themselves. But that's not what the heart of Christmas is. And very often, folk who just kind of go along to church, you know, I'm, I'm a member of the Church of England, the C of E. But we have quite a lot of people in the UK who are C and E, not C of E. That is, they go to church at Christmas and Easter, uh, C and E. And when we have these traditions about Jesus born in a stable and we have these nativity plays and the kids do this, we all go, oh, it's great. It's really easy, my observation, for people to come along to get involved in the traditions and go, oh, look, poor baby Jesus out in the stable. How cute. Okay, let's go and get on with the rest of our lives. And a couple of years ago, I was just preaching at our church on Christmas Day. And so I just wanted to model this. So we actually had uh, the whole member, different members of the congregation uh, forming this nativity scene. So I was sitting in my living room. I was watching television. I thought, well, OK, I've got to get up and, and, and stop watching the Christmas TV. I'll get up and I'll make this nativity set. And so I called people out and I got some people to be the donkeys. And I got a volunteer to be Mary and Joseph and, and, I, and got a baby Jesus and set it all up. And then I left it and I went back to my living room. And I got someone from the congregation to say, hey, Ian, you've always said it wasn't like that. You said Jesus was born in the living room, in the center of the family home. So what I then did is I got the whole nativity scene. I got everyone to get up and move across and sit in my living room. (laughs) I couldn't just carry on watching TV anymore. (laughs) For me, I think that's a really good model of what we want to say at Christmas. Jesus wasn't out there in a stable for you to go and visit him once a year. Jesus actually wants to come into the heart of your home and your life. You know, just as in the first Christmas, Jesus was born right at the center of everything that was going on, you know, and, and okay, might have been interesting. People said, oh, ah, great. But, you know, they had lives to get on with. And yet Jesus was right there in the middle of their everyday lives. And actually, you know, that's what we need to rediscover at Christmas to say to people, you know, Jesus isn't just a once a year thing, but actually he wants to come and he wants to he wants to change your life and he wants to affect the things that you do every day. Mm-hmm. Ian, what might it have been like for the shepherds for them, they're the lowest uh, on the social totem pole. Uh, if Jesus was born in, in like a little peasant home, they would have been comfortable coming to that that home because it's probably a home just like theirs. Uh, yeah, and Luke emphasizes the ordinariness of what they're looking for. So um, it is interesting. Uh, the angel appears to the shepherds and says, um, this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Uh, and of course, actually, we read that as saying, wow, this is really unusual. They'd have said, well, that's just like any other baby. Right. Bethlehem wasn't that large. So, you know, someone who's done um, a study on the demographics and we hear in Matthew's gospel about Herod commanding that all the boys uh, under the age of two years old um, should be slaughtered. And he calculated on the on the expected size of Bethlehem that probably only involved about 12 children. Interesting. So it wasn't this great crowd. So in fact, you know, a birth in a village that size would would have been quite unusual. So the shepherds would have just had to go into the town and say, hey, we heard there's a baby born. And, and people would have said, yeah, he's just three doors up. You go and find him there. You know, <laughs> again, we have the, the, this kind of open, united village life. You know, even in the UK now, it's very easy for people not even to know what's going on in there, in the neighbor, in, down, you know, a couple of doors down, let alone know, going up, know what's going on in the next street. In, in first century village life, everyone would have known what was happening. It would have been the gospel all the town. So they wouldn't have found it difficult to find him. Yeah. Let me take a little break. Okay. Dr. Ian Paul is my guest, theologian and author. You can go just look up uh, Ian Paul and you will find his website. We'll take a short break and be right back.
Welcome back to the show. So glad I get a chance to talk to Dr. Ian Paul. I talk to him as often as I can. And we're chatting about Christmas, which is such a great subject, and he knows so much. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about the Star of Bethlehem. It's just a, a astronomical uh, piece of amazing uh, coming together of stars. But I always see the picture of the star in the sky really bright, and then it kind of laser focuses right down to the stable. If that star yeah. was that bright, wouldn't it just be, wouldn't the light be everywhere? Well, it would. And this is one of the great sort of puzzles of Christmas. And every year there's various different theories about it. Um, I think the major two main theories are that, sorry, let's say two main theories or three main theories, I think. Okay, so one of them would be that it was like a comet and the sort of the comet's tail is pointing in the right direction. Uh, so there's a sense in which you could draw a line in the sky and, okay. and, and see what's going. Um, another theory is that there was a supernova. I think we've got records from China. that There was a supernova exploding in the sky around that time. Mm -hmm. Um, if we, again, locate the story in the cultural context of the first century, one of the things we just need to recognize is that what we call astronomy and what we call astrology, we separate them. So astronomy is the science of looking at stars. Astrology is, I think, what many people would say is very unscientific. Mm -hmm. Many Christians say astrology is a bad thing. And that's about, you know, looking at star signs and saying the stars are significant. Well, in the ancient world, they didn't have those two things separate. They had a sense in which they needed to study the stars and the movements of stars uh, and how things changed. Um, but also these things signified something happening uh, on the earth as well. So we often find in the New Testament the language of stars falling from the sky. And, and that would be understood in the ancient world as signifying that a ruler was going to be toppled or there's going to be a ch big power change or, or maybe, very topical for us, an election and a change of government <laughs> or something like that. And one of the best theories I've seen in terms of understanding why the uh, the wise men, the name is the Magi, so they would have been probably Persian, Zoroastrian, astrologers, looking in the sky, and they may well have seen a conjunction of stars, and there was a, a conjunction would have signified to them uh, a ruler for a nation uh, in the West um, where where Israel was. And that's what prompted them to to travel and to come to Herod and ask about this person who was to be born king of the Jews. I think the, the, the theories about how this star moves and how it points out exactly the place that, uh, that, that Jesus was born, I think that's really difficult to find a good explanation for. One of my favorite commentators on Matthew's gospel is uh, Dick France, R.T. France, uh, who died just uh, a year or two ago. He was a really good, great scholar, and he wrote a fantastic commentary in the New International New Testament series. And, you know, the bottom line is he says, well, there are all these various naturalistic explanations. He says, to be honest, none of them really fit. We really can't think of a way in which a star would actually point to a particular house. And he says, Matthew's pretty clear. This was some sort of miraculous guidance. And mm -hmm. I think I'm, I'm content to, to, to go with that, even okay. if there are other contemporary explanations. Yeah, I like that. So think of mm. the, the, the wise men that had seen the star and that were coming mm. to worship uh, mm. Jesus and give him gifts. Did they show up uh, the night he was born? Uh, they didn't, no. I, know. I, I was asking a question I kind of knew the answer to, but I want you to elaborate on it. Because for a start, if they're traveling from, you know, some way to the east, that's going to take them quite a while. And, you know, they see the sign, they pack up, they, 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 uh, they, they get all their stuff ready, and they head over to Herod. And, of course, the big clue is when Matthew tells us that, that when Herod was enraged and he realized that the wise men didn't go back to him and he, he went down to Bethlehem, his, his instruction was to kill all... Um, boys or children who are aged two and under. 
So that gives us an indication of, you know, he'd asked them when the, when the star appeared. So this is already uh, some long time afterwards. And of course, again, a sign that which chimes in with Luke's narrative of the fact that he was born in the house. It, it, Matthew says very clearly that the, the wise men went to the house where he was. So he is clearly settled in, in, in a household there. Um, and although, again, in the, in, the, in the church calendar, we celebrate Epiphany, um, the, which celebrates the wise men coming to Jesus straight after Christmas in the new year, then we really ought to wait a couple of years before we're doing that. But it, that would make Christmas take rather a long time, I think. <laughs> it it would. But again, the other, the other great myth is that there were three wise men. And in fact, people have made up stories and they've given them names. Uh, Balthazar is one of them. And uh, uh, of course, we don't know the names. The stories are all fabricated, even though they've got, they're quite an early tradition. We love to fill in the details. We love to add the human side of it. But of course, sparse accounts, what Matthew is doing is he's, He's telling the story, but he's telling it to, to do some theological work. One of the really distinctive features of Matthew's gospel is it's really focused on historic ethnic Israel. So, you know, at one point, Jesus is, is, is asked to go somewhere. He says, no, I've come to speak to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And it looks very Jewish. Um, and people fulfill Jewish rituals. And in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he's assuming people are good, observant Jews, that they, they regularly pray, they regularly give alms, they regularly fast. And we only get little hints that actually the gospel, the, the gospel of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, is going to apply for, you know, going to be opened up for the whole world. You know, right at the very end uh, in Matthew's gospel, the Great Commission, Jesus says, go into all the world and baptize uh, people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them everything I've done to you. So we do see the gospel opening up. But this this story is just one of the little early hints that Matthew gives us when we see these people from the East, from a, a pagan nation, and they're acknowledging that Jesus, King of the Jews, is actually going to be someone that they should also reverence. And, and they give these three gifts. They give three gifts, and that's why people have kind of imagined there are there are three wise men. But of course, the, the, the narrative doesn't tell us how many there were. I'd imagine, kept traveling some distance, there'd be a pretty significant car caravan uh, a caravan mm -hmm. of camels with all their supplies and so on for traveling that distance. Mm -hmm. So probably a pretty, pretty big group, I should thought. Yeah. So Ian, uh, I'm trying to think of what it might have been like in the sky that night with all the angels appearing. I mean, this is the birth of Jesus into the world and yeah. the heavens are filled. The shepherds are afraid. What were they looking at and how big was the troop? Uh, that's a really good question. I don't think we know. Yeah. One of the really interesting things is that in Luke's gospel, um, it, this is quite surprising. Luke's gospel has got a lot of connections with the book of Revelation, which is one of my favorite books in the New Testament. And there's a number of different phrases which connect, and there's a number of different uses of the Old Testament which connect. And it's a bit surprising because we kind of would think of Luke's gospel as a very different kind of literature from, from the book of Revelation. But one of the things that Luke's got in common with the book of Revelation is that angels are really important. So we have the angel Gabriel. Um, Jesus is comforted in the garden in this Gethsemane by uh, angels. And we have this great um, heavenly host, this great company of heavenly host appearing with this angel who announces the, the good news to the shepherds. So the angels are really important, but just as they're important in the book of Revelation. But what's interesting in both of them is the angels aren't important in themselves. The angels are important in terms of what they point to. So the angel Gabriel, which means God is mighty, Gibor, Gibor, mm -hmm. yeah, my God is mighty. Um, this mighty angel comes to uh, this ordinary um, peasant girl uh, in, in Nazareth and announces this extraordinary good news to her. The angels appear to the shepherds in the field. Um, 
in the book of Revelation, the angels come on and do extraordinary things. We have a mighty angel in chapter Revelation chapter 10 with a one foot in the land, one foot in the sea. And then, whoa, chapter 11, he's gone. Uh, and then we have later, we have a, a mighty angel whose, whose brightness enlightens the whole earth, and then he just disappears. And I think that's for both for Luke and, and for John in the book of Revelation is telling us that the angels are important in that they've got an important message. In fact, the Greek word angelos, which we translate as angel, actually originally just means messenger. Obviously, in this case, they are heavenly messengers. Well, you know, when a messenger comes to your door, you don't go, wow, it's a messenger. Wow, let's, <laughs> let's, let's add on to the messenger. What you, what you say is, if someone's a messenger, you say, I want to hear what the message is. And that's the focus. So what we need to do with these angels and what the, what the shepherds did do is focus on uh, the message that they brought. And the message was, was uh, Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And one of the things that, that, that Luke tells us more than any other um, writer of the Gospels is that the message is peace. The message is, uh, that Jesus brings is there can now be peace for the people of God. There can be peace between sinners and God because of what Jesus will do. You know, Zechariah, uh, when he can finally speak again, he says, you know, that, that John will, uh, will prepare the way uh, for the message that Jesus is going to bring, forgiveness of all their sins, so they can have peace with God and they can have peace with one another. And Luke and Acts really major on that message. That, And again, it's a really key message of Christmas time that Jesus comes amongst us and he comes into our world in order to bring us peace, uh, to make us at peace with God, to make us at peace with ourselves. You know, so often we have these tensions and pressures and expectations, you know, battling inside ourselves and, and, and we don't have peace. But, but God comes into our world to give us that peace through Jesus, through his cross and his resurrection, and actually to bring us peace. There's so many conflicts in our world, you know, so many personal conflicts we're involved in, conflicts between nations, there's so much war in the world. And actually what God longs to see is humanity at peace. Mm -hmm. So Joseph and Mary and others heading into Bethlehem for a census Nobody was going to Bethlehem to celebrate the first Christmas, right? No, they weren't. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, sometimes I, I fantasize about things that I wish were in Scripture, like what mm. was the talk at the coffee shop the next morning? I mean, oh, the town is busy, and they must yeah. have seen a spectacular light, angels in the sky. Uh, yeah. What were they chatting about that day? Yeah, yeah, no. And, and it's great to speculate on that. Uh, we just need to remember that the Gospels don't tell us all the things we want to know. That's true. What they tell us is what we need to know. Mm -hmm. And and each of the Gospel writers is very selective and saying, Do you know what, I'm going to really focus on the things that, that matter. So let me in a few words just say what, what's really important. And, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, one of the puzzles we sometimes have is, well, how come Luke tells it in this way? How come Matthew tells it in this way? Mark tells it in this way? How come you know, the gospel writers miss stuff out, we think will be really important. You know, John in, in, in chapter 11 of John's gospel, the raising of Lazarus, that becomes incredibly important because it anticipates Jesus' own resurrection and it becomes the thing which provokes the opposition to Jesus. So he's in the end taken to the cross, put on trial and taken to the cross. And you think, well, hang on a minute, why don't the other gospels make so much of that? And the answer is that each of the gospel writers is telling us the things that they think are really important and they're giving us their own distinctive insight into who Jesus is uh, for us. So for, for Matthew, um, he's the fulfillment for Israel, uh, and uh, he's the king of the Jews, and the, the wise men for the East come to see him. Uh, Luke locates him much more in world history, and he will enact, in, in, in draw out the implications of the way that the gospel is taken to the whole world through the ministry of Paul. So each of the gospel writers is giving us a particular insight we need to look at. 
Mm-hmm. And they do things by choosing their words really carefully. So that's why, actually, if you're someone who really likes to look at the detail and likes to look at every single word, then that's probably a good thing to do because, you know, compared with how many words we read on the Internet each day or how many words we read in a novel, the gospel writers give us very few words, so we need to read them really carefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ian, I'm, I want to uh, ask you another question, and this is about yeah. uh, a pastor doing his preaching on mm. Christmas. I know the stakes, are, I bet, are high for a lot of pastors because they know that people will be showing up into the church, maybe not as often as they should, and they might even be dragging along some relatives who don't even know uh, Jesus. So I'm curious as to the kind of message you preach. I would like to take a very short break. When we come back, lots more with Dr. Ian Paul in just a minute. Ian Paul is my guest. I've so enjoyed chatting this hour uh, about Christmas, and uh, right before break, I asked him about, as he prepares a message for Christmas as a pastor, uh, what yep. goes through your mind, and, and do you try to keep it sh- a little bit shorter than usual? What do you do? Yeah, I think um, particularly when we've got guests coming into church, you may not be there. I mean, the first thing is to make sure that what we're saying is connecting with the reality of their lives. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, one of the ways in which we can preach well for Scripture is not to start with Scripture, but to start with their experience and say, you know, what is your life like? Uh, and that does two things. First of all, it actually gives some credibility to say that actually this isn't some weird religious guy. This is someone who, who knows what life is like. And, you know, this is a person like me. So for me, it's always really important to use very ordinary everyday language, to use illustrations from culture around, to explore some of the questions that we have. And maybe that means, you know, connecting with some of the stories in the news or stuff that's happened happen locally, uh, you know, the everyday kind of stuff. So they can see that if Scripture's going to say something, it's saying something into life as it is lived and as they experience it. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing I'd say is that you know, if we're going to build an apologetic for Scripture, Scripture needs to ask questions people are actually asking. Mm, indeed. So if we can articulate for them the questions that they're asking and say, do you know what? You've got this question. I've got this question. Hey, let's look at the story of Christmas in the, in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament. Let's see if it offers 
some answers to our questions. So one of the things I do in preaching at Christmas is always talk about, you know, the Christmas traditions that we have and how we enjoy them and why we enjoy them and what's going on there. I think it's really interesting to reflect on, you know, Christmas traditions and what they do. So, for instance, one of the things we talk about is is seeing family. I know that you in the States, that's important to you at Thanksgiving as well as Christmas and saying, okay, well, what's that all about? Why is family important to us? Are we just individuals or are we actually part of communities? How important are relationships to us? And then around the Christmas story itself, I'll actually say, okay, well, look, is, this is the outline. This is, the, this is what the story is about. And then just press some questions to say, how do we know that? How do we know that that Jesus was born in a stable, as you've been told, or the wise men. How do you know? Well, you know, like any story, if I want to know what's really going on, do you know what I'd do? I'd always go back to the source. You know, I might hear some gossip about somebody, or I might hear a story somebody tells and say, do you know what? I don't know if that really fits with the character of that person. What I need to go do is to go back to the source. I need to go back and say, did you really do that? What what really happened there? And and get their testimony. And so when we do this at Christmas, say, okay, well, how do we go? How do we do that? How do we go back to the source? Well, we go back to the text of the scriptures, because they're the source for us of the story. And that's when we can begin to explore what, what Luke's gospel, what Matthew's gospel really say about it. And, you know, these stories aren't just sitting in the abstract. When Luke and Matthew wrote them, they were engaging with the reality of life for the people they were writing to as well. And if we think these stories are some kind of self-contained religious tradition, which don't engage with everyday life, then I think we've, we've, misread, we've misread them. You know, people... People lived in a different culture, but they very often had similar kinds of questions to us. You know, how do we find meaning in our lives? How do we continue to trust God when things feel very uh, unstable, where, where, there's, where there's change, where there's political change, where there's economic uncertainty? How, how do we live well? How do we raise our children well? How do we flourish in family relationships? How do we resolve difficulties in conflict? They have those kinds of questions as well. Mm-hmm. And so as we read the text, we can see the relevance of... Uh, um, these kinds of questions and the way that the stories engage with them. When there was a, recently I read a survey that 95% of people believe in the existence of a God and 75%, only 75% believe that there are no absolute truths. And I'm thinking Mm. as we approach Christmas, I I want to, uh, I want to be as intentional as I can every day of my life sharing Christ with people. But the Christmas season is also one of those opportunities where we're, we're saying Merry Christmas. We're mm. hopefully smiling at people more, hopefully, <laughs> probably not. But uh, how do we best take advantage of this opportunity and we don't let it slip through our fingers? Well, I think two things. The first is to build bridges with the story. So again, if people are occasional visitors to church, I would say it's great to see you. I think sometimes you go to some churches and they, you kind of get the impression that the first response is, well, it's great to see you, but why didn't you come last week? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so mm-hmm. The first thing is to, is to be hospitable and to welcome. Maybe one of the things we're learning from the Christmas story is to say, do you know what? In Jesus' day, hospitality was a great virtue, a great mm. value. So we should exercise the same hospitality. We should make, pe- make it easy for people to cross the threshold. You know, we may have, you know, in the doorway to our church building, we may have a very low threshold. We may have a ramp to let people wheelchair users to come in. But, you know, culturally, Often we have a huge threshold. You know, sometimes in some services we stand up, we sit down, we don't explain what's going on. We assume people know what, what's going, what, 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 what's going to happen next. We maybe assume people 
know the words to a song or, or they, we understand the ideas. We might use language that they're not familiar with. So I would say the first thing, really the key thing is to make people feel welcome. And you do that by not assuming anything, by lowering the cultural thresholds as low as you can. So that people say, hey, do you know what? I could see myself here. Mm, I could see myself. Lovely. Here. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is, do you know what? Just coming to a Christmas service, it's great to be able to hear a gospel message and hear about God's love. But you're not going to do that in one moment. If, if, if people come to faith straight away, that's fantastic. But, you know, research shows that even in a context where people are being where people have the gospel explained to them and they're invited to make a commitment. For most people, that takes a long time. On average, it takes four years. Wow. So here's the thing. How do we build bridges, make people feel welcome in such a way as then we build relationship? So one of the things I'd really encourage all church pastors to do is to say, OK, if people come, if they've enjoyed it, uh, you know, they've had a great time at Christmas. The, here's the question. What's the easy next step? How do you build relationship? How do you say to them, do you know what? If you found this was interesting, then why not come along next week or next month? Why not come along in New Year to our, you know, Explorers course? You know, in the UK, we've used the Alpha course a lot. I don't know how mm-hmm. many churches in the States have used Alpha. Great but that's a great thing to do yep. is to, uh, to use Alpha in the New Year. And just say to people, hey, come along. Come and explore. Have a meal with us. You know, uh, that's the great thing about Alpha is inviting people to a meal and, and giving people a chance to ask questions as well. So, you know, we're not just saying to you, hey, we've got all the answers. We want to establish some common ground, say, you know, you've got questions. We've got questions, too. We think we found someone who's got answers. So why don't you come along and let's explore together whether those answers are going to are going to help you. So you're, you're building bridges and you're building, giving people the opportunity to explore further. And maybe what that means at, at, at Christmas time is maybe we don't have to give everybody all the answers all at once. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a great saying uh, that people use in, uh, in doing talks to say, leave them, leave them wanting something more. Leave them wanting something more. You know, say there's some really interesting stuff here. Give them some hints. Give them some clues and say, do you know, why don't you come, out, why don't you come and find out more? And in my experience in ministry is that when we do that and we, we offer those easy next steps, that's when people say, hey, do you know, I could, I could see myself coming here again. And, uh, you know, we then follow up and give an invitation. And, and it's that way into to building relationships so people can explore faith and, you know, find out for themselves the good news that Jesus brings. Mm-hmm. And, and do you have any personal uh, favorite Christmas songs? And I would imagine from composers who have been dead for a long time. <laughs> um, there's some uh, there's some quite good modern ones um, as well as some old ones. I mean, um, of course, I love John Wesley. I do, too. So he's he's fantastic. And the thing that's really fabulous about John Wesley is in all his hymns, he doesn't hold back on his theology. So there's, there's really good substantial stuff, you know, and we, we engage emotionally with the music and then we can take on board the words and, uh, and we can chew those over. And there's some, some great theology in Wesley's hymns. Um, Graham Kendrick was a, a composer mm-hmm. um, really popular a few years ago. And some of his songs, uh, his great song, Meekness and Majesty, um, where he really is exploring the extraordinary thing of, of, of the creator God who comes to us in humility uh, in his birth in Bethlehem. Uh, so that's uh, I, that's one I really enjoy as well. Have yeah. you got any favorite Bill? Well, I like A Holy Night and I love Silent Night. Oh yeah, and I understand they were written only about twenty years apart. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and in fact, we went to a concert at a um, an, a property, uh, an, an old house, um, a fifteenth century. We have fifteenth century houses here. <laughs> <laughs> that's so fun. That's, yeah. There's one close to us called Haddon Hall, and we went there, and they had a, a fabulous. Um, uh, concert and uh, they sang Oh Holy Night. That's my, one of my wife's favorites as well. I yeah. think it was originally written in German. Yeah, I think it was too. And then yeah. I know uh, since you got uh, Barney, he's been eating the ornaments on the tree. Have you moved the ornaments up so he stops eating them? 
He has. We actually had to make a strategic decision and just to lift, lift them off the lower branches so that Barney the dog wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't pull them off. So far, so good. He's, he's, uh, he's been well behaved. He's just sitting asleep next to me here. That is so precious. Uh, Ian, always so nice to hear from you. And I love uh, when we get a chance to talk. I know our listeners absolutely love you. And I, great, I thank just, you. It's great I, to chat with you. Ben. Yeah, and have a great ski trip in France coming up in February. I'll be in yeah, Morocco. Oh, wonderful. No, I'm just kidding. Have you been there before? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Remember how you teased oh. me about Morocco last time? <laughs> oh, we did, yeah. We I was did, all out did. of sorts, yeah. So I yeah. figured I'm just trying to get back at you. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks for doing the show, and have a mer- very Merry Christmas. Thank you, Bill. Thanks. You God bet. Bless. Dr. Ian Paul has been my guest. You can head over to Ian Paul. Uh, just Google him, and you will get right to his website. And if you want to know the exact spelling, it's P S E P H. I-Z-O dot com. We'll take a short break and be back. Hour two is going to be filled with Ace Collins, who has written a number of books about Christmas traditions and Christmas hymns. That's all coming up next. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.